0: Good evening and welcome to a second installment of our study of the Gospel of Mark. It's encouraging to see you guys here, and of course, those of you joining us on the live stream and and then uh, you know the recording later. I'm just really glad that and it's it's heartwarming to see so many people that just want to study the Bible, want to learn more about this Jesus. And as you may remember, kind of what we want to do with this gospel is sort of, I don't mean this literally, but kind of forget everything you know about Jesus and let's just see the picture that Mark wants to give us. I think it's gonna be really refreshing. I think it'll shake us up a little bit and give us a really accurate picture of Jesus. Let me say a prayer for us, and we'll dive in. Lord, thank you for this country, and I pray for our country. I pray for the leaders of our country, all the leaders of our country, that you would guide their hearts to do what is good and what is right. I pray that you would give them wisdom when they look across the seas into other countries that we might act justly, and that we might act with wisdom. Father, I thank you for the freedoms that we have. We don't take that for granted, and we know that, and we pray, that our faith would persist whether we were free to worship or we were not free to worship. But we thank you for the country in which we live. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that as we learn more about Jesus, we might see and love you more clearly. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you guys remember obviously the phone number, text your questions. Uh, we're if you remember the Gospel of Mark, I want to talk to you just a little bit about the Gospel of Mark before we jump in. Basically, we're doing two chapters a week. It's a 16 chapter uh, book, and so I'll let you do the math on that, so you can pretty much tell how long this is going to last. But instead of breaking it up thematically. It just works nicely to do two chapters a week. And we'll be in chapters three and four in this lesson. But that way you can read along, you can think about it. I like to get your questions. If I don't answer it, I would, you know, in the lecture, I'd love to answer as many as we can anyway, of things that you think will either build your faith or things that cause you to doubt your faith. Let's let's talk about those things. So the Gospel of Mark. First of all, the word gospel, it's a long story, but I'm just gonna give you the short version. The word that we use for gospel is a translation of the Greek word that just means good news. And so when you see the good news Bible, etc., cetera, that's where it comes from. It's not a religious word, it's just good news. And in fact, last, in our last lesson, I showed you how that word was used in very secular terms about the uh, emperor, Augustus Caesar. So the gospel just means the good news. Hey, I've got some, something really cataclysmically big has happened and I need to tell you about it. That's what gospel is. So there are four accounts of Jesus' life, four gospels, four tellings of the good news. And in your Bible, you'll see the good news or the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, and then the same with John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So just another little thing about Mark. Mark is one of the three synoptic gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic gospels. The word synoptic, S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C, simply comes directly from a Greek word that just means to see things the same way or to approach something the same way. And sure enough, Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of approach the telling of this story, the telling of this good news, they approach it kind of the same way, not exactly the same. Matthew, you can tell, is telling this good news and referring quite a bit to Jewish prophecy and he really wants these people to see how all of this was foretold, that Jesus is the prophesied and promised Messiah. Luke is much more like you and I would think of as a history. He's Greek, he's a physician, he's educated. The Greek in Luke is a little better educated writing. And so he's coming at it from, he's trying hard to just amass all of this data so that you can see the true picture of the good news. Mark is also telling the story of the good news, but Mark is writing down what Peter was saying according to early church tradition, and so you get just one story after another, one event after another. And that's why the teaching of Mark is really, we're just gonna talk about, we're just gonna walk right through it and talk about Jesus did this, and then this happened, then this happened. So he gives more of a blow by blow description. And so they're synoptic in that they tell the story in the same way, but they each have their own character. Gospel of John, does not tell the story in the same way. Doesn't mean it's bad. It simply means that Matthew, Mark and Luke are called synoptics, John is not. John is just, John has no interest whatsoever in telling you anything in any order. Maybe we'll do John in the fall or something. It's, it's this, this good news of Jesus but he, he just wants to tell it in a different way. So that's what Mark is. Now the synoptic problem is which one came first? I mean, for example, Do we think Luke read a copy of Matthew or could Luke have read some of what Mark wrote? Well, my approach in this class is that Mark is is the earliest and that it's probably written anywhere between 43 and 65 AD. So not very long after the events that it's talking about. And so the Gospel of Mark, I think, is probably the older and then you'll see Matthew and Luke tell many of the same stories. Now, scholars argue about that, you know why? Because that's what scholars do. But basically, I think Mark is more primitive in the sense that if either of the other two had read Mark, you can see that. they can You can see, oh yeah, that's exactly right. Matthew could say, that's exactly what happened. I was there and wrote it down. So that's the Synoptic Gospels. That's the Gospel of Mark. And we are in chapter three and four. This is a map of what Israel looked like at the time that this is happening, at the time of Jesus, at the time of Mark. So far, we're here in the north. I'm circling the Sea of Galilee area, that in chapters one and two, three and four, Jesus is spending a lot of time in Galilee. Now Jerusalem, you can see it way to the south down by the Dead Sea, is really where all the action is. I mean, it's where all of the Jewish authorities are. It's where the learned Jews, more of them, are there. And there is a big gulf between these two. Why do I say there's a big gulf? Because Samaria is in between. We've talked before about how Samaria became Samaria, but suffice it for this lesson to say that the Samaritan people thought they were Jewish and the Jewish people thought they weren't. They thought they were very ethnically mixed, which they were. They thought they used a corrupted version of the Old Testament of the Torah, which they did. And so they, they really hated those people. So you tip most of the time you would go around if you were coming or going from Galilee. Well, my point in telling you this is simply to say there's not great communication there. Galilee was very fertile. It was taxed very heavily because that you can really grow a lot of things there. But there wasn't as much communication between there and Jerusalem. It's sort of like, say you had a, a country that was split in two. Like, let's say you had a left coast. Let's say you had a right coast. And let's say you had a flyover territory in the middle. Okay, that's, I'm pushing that analogy. But bottom line, they didn't communicate very very well. But Jesus, at this point, is doing his preaching. And so far... Mark doesn't record much preaching. Mark records a whole bunch of miracles. So this is all happening up here. So right around the Sea of Galilee, let's jump in. And in chapter three, you start with a really startling story. And it immediately gets into the sense of conflict that Jesus is having. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled or crippled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Now think about this, why are they looking for a reason to accuse Jesus? Well, he's kind of already upsetting the established order. I mean, this is a guy who's got thousands and tens of thousands of people following him because of the healing that he is doing. He's clearly a a powerful prophet at least, but he didn't come up through the rabbinical schools. Everybody's wondering, how does this guy know all this about the Torah, about the Old Testament? How how is he so wise? Because he didn't go to any of our universities. He didn't study with any of our rabbis. So he's kind of outside the system. And consequently, he was a threat. So they're always trying to trip him up. So they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath. So let's talk about that for a minute. Why... Uh, We might as well just stop as we go through because I think this will be easier. Why is there a problem about Jesus healing this guy on the Sabbath? Now the Sabbath is the seventh day, the day of rest. It's Saturday. The Jewish Sabbath started at sundown on Friday, ran till sundown on Saturday. So basically Saturday was and is for Jews today, the Sabbath, the seventh day. We Christians worship on Sunday, the first day. We do that because that's when Jesus was raised from the dead. But they worshiped on the Sabbath. When God finished his work, created the Sabbath, and he rested, and he commanded the Jewish people to rest, and he commanded them not to do work. But what does that have to do with them wondering, is he actually going to heal a guy on the Sabbath? Well, it turns out, let's talk a little bit about just life as a Jew. So I think I've told you before about the Mishnah, This is a copy of the Mishnah, and it is a lot. In fact, it's got a lot more in it than my Old Testament has in it. So the Mishnah, according to Jewish tradition, is when God gave Moses the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books, the Torah, the law of Moses, when he gave him that, he said, write that down. Then they believe... He said, now here's a bunch of other rules. Don't write this down. You guys memorize it. Yes, they memorize this. And you hand it down from person to person, from priest to priest. But this is what is known as the oral law, not the written law, the oral law. And this is really a bunch of rules. And as you read it, you can see, in fact, I'm gonna read you a couple of things here that are just interesting. Uh, You can see that the various rabbis would reason there's a whole section in here called the Sabbath. And what they were doing is all they were told was that you should rest on that day and you should not work on the Sabbath. So they began to then parse, well, what exactly does that mean? And there are excruciatingly detailed things that they came up with that you can do, you can't do on the Sabbath. Give you a couple of examples. You cannot sow. Two stitches, you could sew one, but you can't sew two. You cannot write two letters. You cannot erase two letters. You cannot start a fire, which by the way is why, if you remember when Jesus was being crucified on Friday afternoon, well, the Sabbath was the next day. You can't cook on the Sabbath because you can't, according to the rabbis, now this is not in the Bible. The Bible just says you don't do work. Well, they interpreted that, that, well, you can't even start a fire. And so they were all coming into town to get food, you know, cold cuts, right, for the next day because you can't start a fire. So there are all these really detailed things that you cannot do. Um, You get the idea of you can't transport an object from one domain to another. For example, if a beggar comes to your door on the Sabbath and he wants some money, if you take the money and reach out and put it in his bowl, up you just did work on the Sabbath. If, however, he reaches in and takes it out of your hand, you did not do work on the Sabbath. So it's extremely specific. And here's another example. These are just, I mean, there are just tons of these kinds of things where they sort of parsed what did it mean. So if a Gentile, now we're not talking about a Jew who's subject to this, lights a candle then a Jew can use the light of the candle to read. But if the Gentile lit the candle specifically for the Jew, no, you cannot. That's considered kindling a fire and you have sinned. You've broken the Sabbath. Uh, a gangplank, if you come in on a ship in those days, if you, uh, a Gentile comes and puts the gangplank down and it's the Sabbath, if he only put it down for Jews, you cannot leave that ship that day. If however, Gentiles are also going down, then you can. So I'm telling you this only to say that what they're watching for Jesus is, did you break these little rules? Again, the Bible just says you don't work on the Sabbath. It got interpreted in unbelievable ways, which by the way is one of the reasons the people feared and resented and respected the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew all these rules. The Pharisees lived by the absolute ticky dot detail of these things. So they were very holy and devout, but they were always telling everybody else what they were doing. Oh, you know what you just did? Just violated the Sabbath. I did? Yes, you did. I mean, it was that kind of a oppressive situation. So they had decided that healing somebody on the Sabbath, as long as it wasn't necessary to save their life, was work. Now, one thing I want you to, to tell you about this is if Somebody came up to Jesus on the Sabbath because Jesus did not break the law of Moses, ever. If you came up to Jesus and said, let's go out in the fields and work a couple of hours because I think it's going to hail and I need to get my crops in, Jesus would say, no, that's work on the Sabbath. But this was a man-made rule and that's what Jesus had an issue with. So they're watching him to see, will he heal this guy on the Sabbath? So Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, or asked the people, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger. I mean, he was angry with them. And he was also deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And then he turned to the man, he said, Stretch out your hand, which he did, and his hand was completely healed. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, I know you're probably sitting there thinking, 21st century American, you don't kill a guy over healing somebody's hand. Well, you did then. Because at that point, they've decided he's a false teacher. He's telling people that you can break the Sabbath. But I want you to understand, is Jesus violating the law of Moses? No, he's not. Is he violating the Mishnah? Is he violating the oral commands that the rabbis have done, yes, he is. Because one of the interesting questions, well, I'll see what your questions are first, but one of my questions is, why did he just wait until the next day and healing? him? Questions? Um, what do we think about the oral law and what do the Jews think? Was it inspired by God or is it purely an act of humans? Good question. Is the oral law inspired by God or is it a human production? There are some Jews who believe that this is an inspiration of God and then it was the working out of that inspiration by the rabbis. We as Christians, I don't know of any Christians who think that that's inspired by God at all. We believe that that's a human construct. Brilliant construct, nevertheless, a human construct. Good question. So Jesus' issue, and I'll get back to my question in a second, but Jesus' issue is not with God. And I think this is important to talk about for a minute because today, if you don't really know that much about Jesus or about the Bible, a lot of times what you'll hear Christians say is, as long as you're doing something good, that overrides anything in the Bible. See, look at Jesus. As long as he's doing something good, that overrides what's in the Bible. That's not what's happening here. It's not even close to what's happening here. And in fact, Jesus would vehemently disagree with that because Jesus kept all the commandments in the law of Moses. He just wasn't willing to keep all the legalistic ticky dot things that they had added on. Remember when he's talking to the Pharisees at one point, Jesus says to them, you guys are just sons of the devil. He said, you put a burden on people that they can't possibly bear. What he means is you put rules on people that nobody can live up to. And you put way more rules on these people than God put on these people. What Jesus is arguing with is legalism, that's legalism. That says, God says you need to do this, and I say you gotta do a bunch of extra stuff. That's actually what legalism is. Insisting that you obey what God has commanded, that's not legalism, that's called faith. But insisting that you do all of this that God didn't command, that is the definition of legalism. And I think that's why Jesus did this, is he wanted to draw that line. And he said, I'm here, to tell you about the good news of the kingdom of God. And none of this stuff comes from God. And I think he wanted to make that confrontation right up front. And He, you know, the, when the Pharisees looked at him, one thing you'll never see in the Bible is where they looked at Jesus and said, oh, you broke one of the 613 commandments in the law of Moses. Never happened. Never even accused him of it. They accused him of breaking their rules But they never accused Jesus of breaking the law of Moses because he did not. He was obedient to God, but he was not willing to be obedient to this. And that's true for us sometimes too. If we aren't careful, we add on to what God has told us and it becomes oppressive to people. In other words, we make it hard for people to get to know Jesus Christ and follow Jesus Christ because they have to jump through Terry's hoops before they can. That's something Jesus gets angry about. That's why one of the reasons, one of many reasons, it's important for us to read our Bibles to know what has God told us to do and what has he given us freedom in. And so this situation, I think, happened primarily so that Jesus could tell them and draw the distinction between what God has commanded and what uh, the sages, the rabbis, the Pharisees have laid this burden on the people. Imagine being on a constant, some of you came out of churches, uh, communities of faith that are, are like this, that were fairly oppressive. I mean, it's had a lot of rules, a lot of rules that aren't in your New Testament. I mean, a lot of things that just made you feel very guilty. That's one of the things you can, you can tell about legalism. Legalism, breaking people's rules, tends to make you feel guilty and bad. Breaking God's commandment tends to make you feel Bad, it tends to make you feel sorrowful and it motivates you to change. Legalism is so insidious because you can never measure up. Nobody followed all of these rules. Nobody could follow all of these rules. And so everybody felt guilty all the time. Everybody felt like they were less than all the time. And that still happens today some. This is a powerful story to me because I think Jesus is being straightforward in saying, there's no reason this man's hand can't be healed today. Your rules, not God's rules, say that. So that's the first thing, as you can imagine. The Pharisees go out and they begin to plot with the Herodians to kill him. The Herodians, by the way, and this is really interesting because Pharisees were the most devout, the most, you know, I'm going to follow every little piece of the law. Herodians were named after Herod, who was not even slightly a good Jew. Herodians considered themselves Jewish, but think of them as being really secular Jews. They're probably following the laws not much at all, right? And the Pharisees are following it a lot, and yet look at this, you get these strange bedfellows. They would never have agreed on anything, but they agreed that Jesus needed to die because he was a threat to their organization. Second, then Jesus withdrew his disciples to the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd from Galilee, from that area, followed. When they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. i want to stop there and I'm going to show you where, where, what's happening. Think about this. So he's just preaching right around the Sea of Galilee. But I don't think we, we get how many people he healed and how obvious it was and how wide the word spread because he had thousands of people everywhere he went wanting to be healed. So Judea is down here, the area of Jerusalem. In fact, the Pharisees sent people up there, sent some rabbis up there to check this guy out. Idumea isn't even Jewish, it's down south. That's by the way where Herod came from. When they say across the Jordan, They're talking about people coming from here. Those aren't Jewish people either. Up in Tyre and Sidon, sorry, Sidon's off my map here. Up in Lebanon, that's Lebanon today. Those aren't Jewish people. In other words, everybody is hearing about this miraculous wonder worker. He casts out demons, he heals people. So he's got people coming from all around that world, all around that part of the world. So. They withdrew and a large crowd followed him. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, regions across Jordan. So what was Jesus doing? He was healing people and then he was telling them, repent, turn around, change your life because the kingdom of God is here. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crushing him. What he would do is he'd go out on the water just a little bit, you know, 40, 50 feet, and now you could talk to these people. There's no way you could talk to them when they're crushed all around you. So he taught out of a boat a lot of times. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. This is the part I want to talk about. There are two interesting twists here about evil spirits. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God but he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. It's interesting that the demons know who Jesus is. Well, that's not that hard to figure out. We've talked before that demons are the word we use for a group of fallen angels. You have an angel that we name Satan, and he is one of God's angels and he said, I wanna be God, not you. And some of the angels in heaven came with him in rebellion against God. Those fallen angels are what we call demons. And so Satan himself comes to Jesus and begins to tempt him and say, why don't you follow me, worship me instead of of God, because I can give you anything that you want. The temptation, and of course Jesus says, no, I worship only uh, God. And so he kind of overcomes Satan in that. But everywhere he goes, when he sees these spirits, they know who he is. And they know this is not good news. And, but he doesn't want them to speak about it. So we'll talk about that in just a second. Question? I have a question about demons. Yeah, good. Um, where are the demons now? Do we have demons? Do we, um, people that we believe are mentally ill, are they actually possessed? That's a good question. I'm gonna give you two points of view. The question is, where are the demons now? And there are two schools of thought among Christians on this, and both schools of thought have some reason to believe it. I'm just talking to you about orthodox views. In other words, these view, both of these views can be understood biblically. I don't believe they're both right, but I believe that they're both can be understood that way. But you'll probably find Christians who think of this one of two ways. One is that Satan was bound because of Jesus' resurrection, and there's a lot of reason in the scriptures to say Satan got defeated. He got bound. His, he's no longer Satan. Never had the power to do anything here that God didn't allow. In other words, Satan has certain things he can do. He's an angel. He's a creature that lives in a spiritual and a uh, physical realm. And we will be like that in some sense in heaven. We won't be angels, but we'll be beings that encompass the spiritual reality of this world. So Satan was never had the power, the freedom to do things unless God permitted that to happen. And so there comes a time when Satan is bound and he's not permitted uh, to be active in in the earth. And some people think that happened at the cross and then Satan will be unbound, book of Revelation, so we won't get into that in this, this lesson anyway. He'll be unbound for a time and then you're gonna have the battle of Armageddon and then Satan's gonna be destroyed. So some Christians think he's bound now that you don't have demon possession, you don't have demons running around. There are other Christians who say no, they read mainly, they read the book of Revelation a little differently, but they basically would say no, Satan is active in the world now. It is possible to have demon possession, demon oppression that certain uh, certain Christians think that diseases are oppressions and they're caused by demons. Uh, mental illness can be caused by demons. So there are two schools of thought on whether or not that's happening right now. But one thing I would say to you is, um, no matter which one of those two views you hold, because the next question ought to be, well, could I be possessed by a demon? No, and I'll tell you why. Is uh, The simple reason is this. When you, Ephesians 1.13, when you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, a down payment, this is Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, guaranteeing your inheritance. It's sort of like God put the Holy Spirit, his spirit inside of us and said, that's a guarantee of what's to come. And my spirit will make you holy. Talks about the idea of we were destined to become into the likeness of Christ. It is not possible for the Holy Spirit to be inside you and then a demon come and possess you. That's just simply impossible theologically. makes no sense at all. John says in 1 John, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Satan's power and God's power are not the same at all. It's not like a battle, right? Like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. No, God's power is immensely more. So I don't know if that was on your mind. I don't know if that was worrying you, but I do want to reassure you no matter what, which view you have of that, I do not believe that demons can overcome the Holy Spirit within us. Okay, so if Satan is bound, is our battle still otherworldly? And is he not prowling around? Yeah, great question. If Satan is bound, then is our battle not otherworldly? Don't we need Satan to be active here? For Satan, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Uh, resist him and he will flee. You do get the sense in the New Testament, hence these two points of view, that there is some kind of satanic temptation, some effort to win your heart for him. Have you worship him? Now, I'm not talking about devil worshipers here. I'm just talking about getting you to worship money, getting you to worship yourself. That's Satan worship, whether you think it is or it's not. And so that would be an example of Satan is obviously doing something in this world, but the people that think he's bound think that his, his abilities are curtailed. In other words, that you don't see things like this happening because the gospel's in the world. Hard question to answer, but those are the two views, and that's why. Those two views are that way. Here's an interesting question, though. Why is Jesus telling them not to tell who he was? I mean, seriously, why not just tell everybody? I am the son of God, I'm here, I really am the Messiah. Well, he's saying it, but not in so many words. In other words, the Pharisees and the Herodians want to kill him. I'm going to tell you the easiest way to get killed would stand up and say, I am the son of God. They'd go, "Well, well, that's all we needed right there. Let's stone him. In fact, that happens a couple of times. He says some things that they realize are, wait a minute, only God can do that. Are you saying that you are the son of God? We're going to kill you. And they try to kill him. That's not in God's plan. In other words, Jesus has has an appointment with a cross. Jesus has a ministry to do. That's one of the reasons, by the way, he retreats and moves away from all these people. You think, oh, how heartless is that? There are 10,000 people here that need to be healed. Why don't you heal them? Because he didn't come to heal everybody on the earth. He came to bring the good news of the gospel. And so he would travel. He's going to travel far beyond Galilee, but we'll see that as Mark goes on. So what he's telling them is, no, this is not my time. Do you remember the uh, miracle in John? John tells you the first miracle Jesus did. It was at that wedding in Cana of Galilee, and they ran out of wine, and his mom comes to him, and he says, Jesus, we ran out of wine. And Jesus goes, and what? You want me to do what? The liquor stores are closed. I mean, now I know you can buy wine and beer on Sunday and Saturday, but in those days, you couldn't buy it on Saturday. So the local 7-Eleven was closed. And so he says to her, you know, what do you want from me? And she says, you just do what he tells you. And so he does this first miracle. What he said to her, though, is what do you want with me? All kidding aside, my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. His time has not yet come to reveal who he is. In fact, he's going to teach in parables to make sure nobody figures that out right away. And then afterwards, everybody's going to, it's like everybody's light bulb all goes on at once. They go, oh, that's what he was talking about in that parable. His time has not yet come. So he won't let people he's healed, he tells them, don't don't tell anybody about this. He tells the demons, be quiet. You know, you're not here to spoil this. God has a plan, and it's going to happen whether you like it or you don't. Well, he also uh, has, has an interesting passage here that also, again, deals with this idea of demons. Jesus then entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples weren't even able to eat. When Jesus' family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. They're like, They can't get their head around Mary, his brothers, they can't get their head around what is he doing? No one has ever done something like this. I mean, no one has done this. This is kind of scary if you think about it. It it makes people afraid when you realize, whoa, this guy, I mean, I wanna be healed, but who is this man that can do this? No one has ever been able to do this. This isn't one of those healing services where like, okay, let's get four of you up here. Uh, We're gonna do hips tonight. And so come on up and I'm gonna slap you on the head and your hips gonna be healed. Okay, yeah, I'm being facetious, I know. But my point is, this is nothing like that. This is anybody, everybody crippled hand. I mean, literally, you gotta change the bone structure. These are miracles that he's doing. And people are, they're scared about that. The teachers of the law who came from Jerusalem, so they're sending people from Jerusalem because they've heard about this too. They said, he must be possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, That's the only way he could possibly be driving out demons because people don't do this, right? By the way, there's a funny little word play on this word Beelzebub. So the Beel, just think of it as Baal. That's the god Baal. And then his name, he was called Beelzebul, which is Prince Baal. He was one of the Philistine gods. But Jewish people have such a great sense of humor. If you just take that L and make it into a B, it changes the meaning of the word from Prince Baal to Lord of the Flies. And it was quite the little twist, you know. They it was just getcha kind of a thing, like, oh yeah, your God Baal, know him, Lord of the Flies. Yeah, I mean, just it was an, an insulting thing to do. But that's where it came from. They're talking about Satan. He said, for by the prince of demons, Beelzebub, that's another name for Satan that came to be another name for Satan. That's how he's driving out demons. And Jesus said, "That is really makes no sense whatsoever. Look what he says to them. He says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If I'm working for Satan, why am I driving out demons out of people? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Where have you heard that before, by the way? It's just a quiz. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln. Isn't that interesting? A house divided cannot stand. And so this comes from Jesus. And so he says, look, there's no way that I work for Satan because I'm working against Satan. You guys are really struggling here and you're really getting on my nerves. Then the second thing he said is really interesting. Look at this in verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. What's he saying there? This is really powerful. I mean, he's saying it in an interesting way, but what he's saying is, do you see what I'm doing with these demons? Do you suppose that Satan would allow this unless I've already tied him up? In other words, I've already overcome him. I am more powerful than he is. They do not wrap their mind around this yet. But he's making the point, he says, if you wanna rob a guy's house and he's strong, He's not gonna let you do that unless you tie him up. And so you're gonna to have to be good enough to tie him up first. He goes, same here. How do you think this is happening and Satan's not here stopping this? Because he can't. I mean, Jesus is making a powerful statement there. and I don't want you to think of that as a powerful statement too, because there's not, only is there nothing physical in this world that can stand between you and the love of Christ, there's nothing spiritual in this world that can stand between you and the love of Christ. So then they said to him, uh, I tell you the truth though, Jesus says, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Why did he say this? Because they were saying he has an evil spirit. So I'm here to tell you what the unforgivable sin is. Actually, this text is telling you what the unforgivable sin is. It appears that the unforgivable sin, the one thing that cannot be forgiven, is basically taking the works of God and attributing them to Satan. Saying, God, you yourself are evil. Jesus, all the things and healing that you're doing are not from a good God, they are from Satan. That appears to be what he's talking about here. And I know this bothers people a little bit because they think, oh no, there's something I could do that would make me, I'm going to hell, I can't be forgiven of this. This is not something you slip into, it isn't something that you just, oh gosh, I didn't realize that, I'm done. It's, this is basically that attitude that is so opposed to God that you're actually attributing God's acts to Satan. That appears to be what he's talking about here as the the unforgivable sin. Well he moves on and he keeps telling some parables and this is one of my favorite parables, it might be one of yours too. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. I wanna make sure I get through these next two events are really powerful. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat, sat in it out on the lake. And if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, you know what I'm talking about. You could get 10,000 people on that shore. And if you go out you know, 30, 40 yards, your voice is gonna carry very nicely to those people. And so he went out, uh, all the people were on the shore at the water's edge and he taught them many things by parables. And he said this, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, but because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they didn't have any roots. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked the plants so they didn't actually produce any grain. And still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop 30, 60 or even 100 times. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now you know what that parable means because he's going to tell his disciples all those tens of thousands of people listening to him. He didn't tell them what that meant. And so you're you're like, what is he talking about? That sounds really profound, but I have no idea what it is. Kind of like me in certain rap songs. It's like, that sounds kind of profound, but I really have no idea what that's talking about. Well, that's kind of the way they were. They were a little puzzled by this, and understand this puzzle. By the way, the one thing they did get was the hyperbole. In those days, because of the way they scattered the seed, in this all seriousness, an eight to one return was good crop, and a 10 to one return, was unbelievably good. Meaning you've got a pound of seed and you sow it. If you can get eight pounds out of that, you've had a good harvest, right? You can eat it and you can seed the next year. He's talking about 30, 60 or a hundred times. He's talking about something that's happening here. I mean, this they would have gone home and thought about this and talked about this and argued about this. And that's one of the reasons I think Jesus taught in parables. If you just make a declarative statement It doesn't really engage your brain very much. That's part of why when we teach here, we really want you to engage the Word of God as opposed to me just saying, well, this is the way it is, and that's the way it is, and that's the way it is. First of all, I don't know how the way it is for everything, but you will think if you will engage the Word of God. I think Jesus told the parables to make people have to think about it. So you end up with a faith that's informed, not a faith that's just given to you. I don't think that produces much faith. So he tells them this, and of course, his disciples have no idea either what this means. When he was alone, the 12 and some others around him asked him about the parables. And he said, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving. This is a quote from Isaiah. Ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Now that sounds like Jesus says, I don't want them to believe. What Jesus was saying is, I think Jesus taught a lot of what I call time delay, time release things. He goes, you just think about this a little bit and in not very long time, when I'm raised from the dead, you're gonna go, aha, now we understand the whole picture. But he gave it to them in pieces so that they could come to it, I think. So Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How in the world are you gonna understand any parables then? This one's easy, Jesus says, the farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes the word away that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and they receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they'll fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, this is worth paying attention to because this could be spoken... To, uh, to us, 21st century Americans. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. This is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. You go to the branch and there's no fruit on it, well, you just prune it off and throw it in the fire. This is that same idea, is that there are things in this life that don't necessarily take the word out of you, that don't make you go, I don't believe this anymore. It just makes you unable to actually live it out, makes you unable to bear fruit for God. And then finally, others like the seed sown on good soil hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. This is a brilliant parable. We call it the parable of the sower, but it's not about the sower. This parable is about the soil. I mean, the same word is being preached to everyone. The truth of the New Testament is there for everyone to read. The question is, what kind of soil am I? In other words, will I take this and I don't, don't believe it? It's just like it came on a rocky place, bird ate it, took it, makes no difference in my life. Do I take it and I'm joyful about it, but I have no roots? I have no perseverance. And so as soon as a persecution might come, as soon as it gets to be hard to be a Christian, I'm gonna fall away. Or others, and this has been me at some times in my life, and that is I believe and I really wanna follow Jesus, but boy, I like that stuff and the deceitfulness of wealth and all the stress and all the worry that comes with raising kids and coaching Kitty T-Ball and you know trying to make enough money and get that next promotion and... It, All of the deceitfulness of the wealth and life and the stress that comes with it, really, I don't know if you've ever felt this, but I can't explain it to you, to me, but I have been there where I really do believe, but all this worry and stress and chasing around in my life, it just seems to keep me from doing those things. It keeps me from actually following you because I'm juggling so many balls, I, I can't quite get to following Jesus. I think this, this kind of soil is what a lot of us as Christians are like. We do take the seed. We do believe Jesus is the Christ. We do want to follow him. We do want to be transformed, but we just are having a hard time letting go of the worry in this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for stuff. I really do think that that is Satan's way to entrap a lot of us is we do believe, but I'm not bearing any fruit. Most of what I do, and I've said this before, look at your calendar, look at your checkbook. You'll find out what's really important to you. And I've done that before and I've gone, if, you, if I looked at this guy's calendar and his checkbook, I'd say he's a worldly guy. And I go, I'm not a worldly guy. And then I go, yeah, I kind of am right now. I do believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. Help me let go of these things. This is what pruning is all about. The idea of Jesus wants to take away, the Holy Spirit wants to take away the worries, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires, the lust for things that we have. And so he tells that brilliant parable, and I think he told that parable, and it echoes down through the ages because it's really confronting and forcing all of us to ask the question, what kind of soil am I right now in this life? I don't think believe in determinism. In this sense, I know that there are some theologies that do, but I don't really want to get into that. What I want to say is, is that they're like, oh no, apparently I'm rocky soil, I'm doomed. I really do think that this is given to us to make us examine ourselves, and we can put away those things. We can dig deeper roots. I believe God wants us to be saved. Sometimes we just won't let go of all the thorns that are in our life. But I like this parable a lot because I think it challenges us. Final story, and this one's interesting because when you put all these together, Mark's really brilliant to do these stories together because they're gonna make some sense. He's been preaching over here on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, Jewish area, tons of little villages. He gets into a boat in this next story and he says, let's go to the other side. He went to the other side, there are not so many Jews on this side. And there are not so many people and so many crowds. There aren't as many towns on the east side in those days of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is going to get a way to recharge himself a little bit. But watch what happens. This, By the way, I don't think I've told you this, but the Sea of Galilee, uh, I may get this wrong, I'm just doing this out of memory. Maybe like five miles at its widest. I want to say 11, but I don't think that's right. I think about 13 miles. Anyway, it's a big old lake. So this is not that far across by our standards, but if you think, remember I showed you in our last lesson the boats they were in? Oh yeah, this is not easy to get across, especially depending on the wind. So watch what happens. That day, this is the end of chapter four now, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took Jesus along as he was in the boat. There were also some other boats with him. A furious squall came up, probably heard this in sermons before, but on the Sea of Galilee, the winds come up and you can get some pretty high waves, but you don't even need very high waves. I mean, small waves will swamp the boats that they were in. They're they're really not able to handle a lot of uh, turbulence in the water. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. He's exhausted. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now here's one thing I want you to realize. This danger is real. These guys are fishermen, right? Several of these disciples are fishermen. They lived on this lake. They know people who have drowned. And so they understand this is a real danger. Because the way Jesus reacts, if you aren't careful, you can think, oh, they were just worry wards. No, they probably were going to die. So Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, be quiet, be still. And the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified. Notice that. They weren't happy, they were scared to death. And they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. If you think about it, when you come face to face with God, there's a great little saying, I believe John MacArthur said this. He said that the wind and the waves outside the boat were a lot less scary than God in the boat. And there's some truth to that, that's a clever saying. There's some truth in that in the sense that when you come face to face with that kind of power, even if it's benevolent, they were terrified like, you literally just made nature obey your will. We've seen you, and think about this, we've seen you healing people, we've seen you have crippled legs literally not be crippled anymore. We've seen you do all these things. We've seen demons do what you told them to do. And we are scared to death. So they're afraid, this is really interesting because I wanna talk about this, but notice the theme that runs through this. When Jesus isn't with them, he's sleeping, they're scared to death. They think they're gonna die and they probably were. Then Jesus gets up and he acts in their life and they're scared to death. Again, only a different reason this time. And they're saying what everybody's saying, who is this? No one can do these things. This is beyond our ability to understand. They don't yet understand, you really are the Son of God. You are the Messiah who's come into the world. But when you get face to face with God's power, they're just terrified. They're absolutely scared to death. If you remember Peter, this story is not in Mark. Peter is with Jesus and he pushes out uh, from the shore And after Jesus preached for a while, he said, let down your nets, and they do, and they have so many fish, they they almost sink the boat. I mean, they get so many fish. And what is Peter's reaction like? Thanks for the fish? Peter kneels down in front of Jesus and said, Lord, depart from me because I am a sinful man. He's scared to death because now when you're in the presence of that kind of power and that kind of holiness, it makes us realize who we are. It's like looking in a mirror and seeing not a very good picture. So the point I'd like to make about this, because I want you to take this away as a kind of a life application, is when things happen to you in your life, and I don't mean waves on the sea, I mean the difficulties and the struggles, and you know what those are, the anxieties and the worries and the fears in this world, you're going to be afraid. And it's okay to be afraid. But your faith over time as God proves faithful, is going to put away your fear. John, again in 1 John, is going to say, perfect love casts out fear. That's not an instant thing and he said, oh, if you really love God, you'll never be afraid. Our faith as it grows pushes out the anxiety in our life and it pushes out the fear in our life. And if you think about living a fearful, anxious life, which if you look at the statistics as Americans, big old percentage of us do. The answer to that is to grow our faith. That's what he says, where's your faith guys? You've seen all this stuff, come on. Your faith needs to grow and it will push out the anxiety and it will push out the fear. And so this idea of clinging to Jesus in your troubles, this idea of holding on to Christ, this idea of prayer are all ways to increase your faith. Because as your faith expands, the fear and the anxiety and the worry will be pushed out of your life. So Jesus in this story is saying something, in my view, that is absolutely 100% applicable to us today. You basically, and, and think about the way Mark puts this together. So you're facing a trial or anxiety or difficulty in your life. And you think to yourself, and what they said was, hey, this is too much. And Jesus said, are you kidding me? You might be afraid, but don't tell me this is too much. You've seen me heal people. You've seen me command demons. You just saw me literally make nature do what I told it to do. You can trust that nothing is too big for me to do. That's what I want you to trust. Nothing is too powerful for you. Sometimes things are going to happen to us, and sometimes bad results are going to come, things that are unpleasant for us, pain and difficulty, suffering. We really will all die, right? But some of us will only die once. And so when you you see this, you have to think to yourself, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but Jesus Christ, there is nothing more powerful than that. My God is able to overcome anything in my life. I knew a guy once, let's close with this story because this really exemplified this to me. And I just pray that one of these days I'll, I'll get to this point. So he was in his 80s, he was, uh, he was not in great health and he, I don't know if he'd have a heart issues or whatever, but I remember seeing him one morning and I said, how'd it go, how are you? And he goes, well, I had an interesting night last night. And I said, really, well, how'd it happen? He said, well, I was laying in bed and I began to shake really violently. And then I began to have a hard time getting my breath and I was having kind of a spell. And I thought to myself, this might be what it feels like to die. <clears throat> I mean, because you know, he, I think he probably did die, whatever those things are, but not that night. And so I said, oh my gosh, what did you do? He said, you know, I thought I'd just lay here for a few minutes and say, let's just see how this thing wants to play itself out. And <laughs> like, what? He goes, well, I thought we ought to just see how this thing was gonna go. You know, if I was going to die or if I wasn't going to die, but I thought I'd just see how this thing was going to go. So God and I had a chalk, you know, I started to pray to the Lord. And I said, weren't you afraid? He goes, well, not really. He said, I know my God will take care of me in this life or the next. But yeah, it was kind of a curious feeling. like, you have got to be kidding me. This guy's got a great attitude. But it's that kind of trust. It's like, I don't know how this thing's going to turn out, but I know my God is more powerful than anything that can happen in my life. Amen. Live that out this week, and then we're gonna find out the further adventures of Jesus in chapter five and chapter six. See you guys next time.